Well, in Matthew's Gospel last Sunday morning, we were in chapter 18 dealing with the theme of forgiveness. In the evening with primarily the place of the Father in the home. Now I'd like for us to move on to chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel, beginning with verse 16. And this is that portion of Scripture that deals with the rich young man who came to Jesus I'm not going to dwell on everything in this, in this passage. It would be impossible in one sermon, but I want to focus primarily upon Jesus' evangelism of this man and what that tells us about evangelism and to do evangelism because every heart here needs Jesus and there are some here who do not know Christ at all. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, beginning with verse 16, but let's first pray. Our Father, this completely unworthy minister of word and sacrament comes now before his people as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ, to feed his people and to ask that the Holy Spirit, that Spirit that came down upon your people at Pentecost, that works within your church today, There will yet be more powerful effusions of the Holy Spirit upon those of us who are indwelt by him, and that you would grant in this needy, needy time genuine reformation, renewal, and revival in your church, in your church throughout the land, especially in our own country, but also throughout the world. And we pray that the Spirit of God would undertake for this poor minister and for every heart here, that we may understand the gospel, understand this teaching, and take it way down deep so that we may be transformed by this good news. For it is in the name of Christ, the Redeemer, that we pray. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, beginning with verse 16. This is the word of God. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, 
When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Wealthy young man came to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, Jesus had just taught the humble faith in him was necessary in order to enter the kingdom. That's in these verses preceding this passage. When in verse 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. His point here is not that children are innocent, and so you come innocently as a child. There are no innocent children. Children are sinners. They are fallen in Adam deserving of God's infinite displeasure, according to the Bible. Children are small. They are helpless. They are without claim. They are without merit. That's Jesus' point. If you would come to him, then you must come as a little child, small, helpless, without claim, no merit of your own. But this man wanted to earn eternal life. We read in verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I have kept What do I still lack? Which indicates that he believed that he could do something in order that he might earn eternal life. The rich young man wanted to do something, offer something to God, as all of us by nature do, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit to save us from our sins. And do not miss the thought behind the question. This young man really thought he could do something in order that he might have eternal life. Now, Jesus could have stopped him right there, couldn't he? He could have said, no, no, you you don't understand. You don't do anything to enter the kingdom of God. I do it all. I do everything. As a matter of fact, I am on my way to the cross, and there I will shed my blood for sinners, and you simply trust in me. Now, Jesus could have done that, and it would have been absolutely true. It would have been exactly what the Bible teaches about redemption and salvation. That would have been true. It's where Jesus is leading this young, rich man. But Jesus' evangelism is quite different than modern approaches to evangelism. And he knows that there is heart work to be done. That there is need for this man to be deeply convicted of his sin so that he might see his need of a Redeemer and a Savior. And so he approaches evangelism quite differently than we tend to do. Now, the first thing we see as we begin to investigate this conversation between this young man and Jesus is that Jesus rebukes him. Jesus' rebuke is found in verse 17. You see the man has asked, uh, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. You have an inadequate view of goodness. In the absolute sense of goodness, Needed for eternal life, only God is good. Now, Jesus is God, and Jesus is absolutely good. But his focus is, to use the words of D.A. Carson on this, Jesus will not allow anything other than God's will to determine what is good. By approaching Jesus in this way, the young man reveals simultaneously that he misconstrues the absoluteness of God's goodness. In other words, we can say it this way, the kingdom of heaven belongs to meritless children, not to rich, pompous young men 
who want to establish their own standard of what is true and what is not, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, and what is bad. But will you notice from the start that we already have a hint that Jesus' evangelism is quite different than what we typically think of evangelism because he begins by answering the man's question with a rebuke. I'm not suggesting that in every evangelistic situation that should or need happen. But Jesus began with a rebuke. He knows something about this man's heart and his need, and he begins with a rebuke. The tendency of the church today is to do everything that we possibly can to set aside anything that might be offensive. Jesus didn't do that at all. As a matter of fact, the entire encounter demonstrates that he ups the offense, that he heightens the offense in order that this man might really come to understand who he is and what his need of the gospel is. Now that takes us to the second thing that we see, Jesus' piercing, penetrating instruction. Now Jesus' instruction then is found in these verses 17 through 19. And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one good. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man says, in essence, oh, is that all? (laughs) Is that what it's all about, entering into eternal life? Oh, I'm a moral man. The law, that's what I've done all along. If that's what it takes to enter into eternal life, then all is going to be well with me because I have always obeyed the law of God. All these I have kept. What still do I lack? Perhaps he's hoping that Jesus will say, oh, you lack nothing. If you're doing that, all is fine. You just continue to do these good things and to obey the law. And in the end, you'll get to heaven. You'll have eternal life and everything is going to be fine. Just continue to do the law. But in pointing to the law, was Jesus teaching the man to be at peace? Was Jesus teaching this man that he could be saved by his good deeds or saved by law? Was Jesus teaching this man that he could be saved by contributions of goodness from himself? See, in verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Jesus is not teaching this man that he is saved by the law. What Jesus is doing is holding up the mirror of the law before this man who has never seen himself in this mirror. He's holding up the law of God as a mirror, showing the absolute perfection of the law of God, how it reflects the character of God, how it shows this man his need, how it shows the emptiness of any contribution of self-righteousness that he could give or ever think to produce He's holding up this mirror and he's saying, I'm using this law, this 10th commandment, in order that you might see that you have a covetous heart. I'm holding up this mirror of the law so that you will finally see yourself. You've read these laws. You think you've kept these laws, but you haven't. See yourself as I hold up the mirror of the law of God. Now let me ask, do you see yourself by nature apart from Christ Dead in trespasses and sins, born in rebellion against God. Have you ever seen yourself in the mirror of the law of God? All over this nation this morning, there are ministers standing in pulpits who are telling their people, just be good and all will be well. They will go to a passage such as this one and they will say, you see, Jesus is just saying, keep the law and everything is going to be fine. 
But that is not what Jesus is doing. Have you ever seen yourself in the perfect mirror of the perfect law of God? And so what were Jesus' motives here? I don't think it's difficult to see. Jesus' motives were these. First, to show the spirituality of the law of God. That the law of God is holy and just and good and that we are not. And then Jesus would show the unattainable and inflexible nature of the law of God. You think you can keep the law? You could never attain to the perfection of the law of God in order that you might be saved. You remember how James puts it in chapter 2, verse 10? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Jesus is showing the helplessness to which an understanding of the law leads us so that when we see its spirituality and we see that it reflects the character of God, it shows that we are helpless and hopeless and undone. And it shows the necessity of an inward change, a total transformation of heart, a helpless attitude that relies upon Christ alone for salvation, showing that you and I need a new heart. You know that you need a new heart. You and I are born in our sin, and we, you and I, need to be converted. We need new hearts. You must be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God, and the law of God shows that. And then Jesus, by holding up this mirror of the law before this man, does so to show the necessity of a complete, perfect righteousness that this man cannot, cannot come up with, cannot produce, cannot make, cannot attain, and cannot offer to God. In order to be right with God, you need a perfect righteousness, and you and I can't do it. In order to stand in the presence of God, we need to be clothed in a perfect righteousness, and we cannot produce it. And so Jesus' motives are to show the spirituality of the law to show the unattainable and inflexible nature of the law, to show the helplessness to which an understanding of the law will lead us, to show the necessity of an inward change, a new heart, and to show that we need a complete and perfect righteousness in the court of God if we are going to stand before him in the judgment. In short, Jesus holds up the perfection of the law of God so that man, this man, and so that you and I can see our need of grace. You know, most of us do not mind admitting that, we're, that we sin, that we transgress, that we commit this sin or that. Sometimes you'll come across people who will say they see that, that they, don't, they don't see any sin in their lives. But most people will say, yes, I sin, but almost no one, as a matter of fact, apart from grace... No one will from the heart say, I am a sinner. Most of us don't mind saying that we sin, but we do mind confessing that we are sinners, that there is something radically wrong with my heart, that I and myself can do nothing about it, that I am fundamentally bad, that I am totally depraved. We don't like that. Only grace can bring us to that confession. Only the sovereign, free work of the Spirit of God can bring us to that humble admission. I was talking with somebody about the gospel, and I had presented the gospel to them. 
And uh, the person was polite and listened as I presented the gospel. And at the end of the conversation, the person looked at me and said, why ever would I want that? Why ever would I want that? I talked about Jesus going to a cross, dying for sinners on a cross. Why ever would I want that? And the reason the person responded that way is because, like this rich young man, this person had never seen herself to be a sinner deserving God's infinite displeasure. Jesus then is holding up the perfect law of God so that this man will see his need of grace. He's showing the man the depth of his depravity. He is showing this rich young man his utter and complete helplessness and hopelessness apart from grace. Jesus is knocking the props out from under all of his attempts at self-justification, knocking the props out from under all attempts at self-salvation, that view that we do not need God or that we can come to know him through our own means and through our own works, and on our own terms. The young man was ignorant of his heart because he was ignorant of a spiritual nature of the law of God. Ignorant on a spiritual level of what the law of God means. Ignorant on a spiritual level of the character of God in his infinite perfections reflected in his law. And if there is anything that is needed in the pulpit today and in our evangelism today, it is this understanding of the proclamation of law in order that men might see themselves to be sinners in need of grace. And when this is not done, we fill our churches with unconverted people. I'm talking about our memberships, maybe even our pulpits. And so the tragedy of self-righteousness is this. The tragedy of self-righteousness is that the self-righteous person thinks he needs no gospel at all. The self-righteous person thinks he needs no redeeming. Or he may so radically reinterpret the gospel that it's not the gospel that he accepts. So radically reinterprets Christ and his work that it's not Christ that he really believes. And the law shows us our need of a perfect righteousness in the court of God's law. The gospel comes against the backdrop of the law to break our commitment to this lie. I stand before God in rags. I stand before God naked. There I am thinking that I'm dressed before him and the good things I've done, the good works that I've done. Oh, I've kept all of these from my youth. I've done all of these things all of my life. But you stand before God if you are outside of Christ, naked, dressed in your sin, deserving of his infinite displeasure and wrath. That's what the scriptures teach. And so I ask, are you convinced of your sin and misery apart from Christ? I don't care if it sounds old-fashioned. Do you understand your hell-deservedness? Now, this is exactly what Jesus did, you will recall, in the Sermon on the Mount. Just keep this place and turn back to chapter 5 of Matthew. Jesus took this very approach in Matthew's Gospel Chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. 
You think anger is a little thing? Well, he says in Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That's Jesus meek and mild who said that. Verse 27 here in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus then, here and in chapter 19, takes these commandments of God. And the Ten Commandments are like ten great cannons And when God fires them off in his sovereignty, let me tell you, the ball doesn't miss its aim. And so the law of God goes forth. Someone in this room is so captivated by lust, it eats you up. And the law of God says, you shall not commit adultery. And when the Holy Spirit takes that, that, that aim and it hits the heart, That man, that woman, that child is convicted of his or her sin. Someone here is is an inveterate gossiper. You live life for gossip. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The cannon goes off. The law of God is proclaimed. And God uses it to convict of sin, These ten booming cannons of the law sent by the sovereign hand of the Holy Spirit to shatter our self-righteousness and break down these walls and barriers against the gospel of Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing in this passage. But now, thirdly, let's see the rich young man's response, at least at this point. We don't know later, but at this point. The rich young man's response, we find it here in verse 22. Jesus answered to him, he said to him, when this young man had come and and he had pointed out the law, the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This young man heard Jesus. Jesus came, he presented the law, sell all you have. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And the young man went away sorrowful. And he went away sorrowfully because material wealth was the obsessive idol of this young man's heart. Jesus' words are forcing him to see his covetousness. And he says, here's the 10th commandment. I've listed these other commandments, but oh, this 10th commandment, that really gets at this young man's need. And the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You know, David Pallison rightly points out that idols counterfeit God's character. Idols counterfeit God's character. They become our judge, our savior, our source of blessing, our sin-bearer, our objects of trust. That's true of every idol of the heart. Take, for example, a, a, a young man that's possessed by drugs. The drugs, every time he takes them, judge him, condemn him. 
but he keeps going to them as if these drugs were his savior. They become his source of blessing. They give him his high. And then it becomes the sin bearer for him because he goes to his drugs so that his guilt might be drowned in his high. It becomes the object of his trust. He can't get away from them. He keeps going to the drug. That's true of every idol of the human heart. Each idol makes promise and gives warning. Service to each idol results, says Pallison, in a hangover of misery and accusedness because idols lie and murder. If you are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, bound by these idols, you don't even see your need until you hear the law of God come against these idols. Every Christian here also needs to continue to apply that to his life, do we not? For even though the Holy Spirit has chopped down the idols of our hearts, there are shards in the yard that desire still to sprout up in various ways. And we continue to need to hear the law and the gospel. We continue to need to hear Jesus say, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And there's one thing, as old Dr. Tozer used to say, when a man took his cross outside of the city, he wasn't coming back. And yet, what do we want to do? We want to take on that cross of the Christian walk, and yet we're still fascinated with the world, and we want to go back. The spirit of Christ and the spirit of world of the world are opposed to one another, people of God. We need, as Christians, to continue to apply law and gospel to the idols of the heart that the spirit of God may remove them and chop them down so that we may live differently than the world around us. And so this young man's problem was material wealth. And material wealth is not the only idol. There are as many applications of these words of Jesus in this place as there are people sitting here. There are as many applications of this as there are hearts that are here. For every human heart outside of Christ is an idolatrous heart. And so Jesus says to this young man, Go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Not because doing this saves the soul, but because this shows this man the need of his heart. You hear the verbs? Go, sell, give, come, follow. Jesus is calling for a revolution in this young man's life, and he does in yours and in mine as well. He says to us this morning, Go, sell, give, come, follow. Let there be a radical change in your life through the Spirit of God. Live differently. Have a transformed heart. Have a transformed life. And as I pause and I think about this young man and hear the sad, sad echo down into the corridors of eternity, I wonder, did the Holy Spirit open and regenerate his heart? Did he trust in Christ as Savior? Or did he cling to his idol? What is true of you? Do you cling to your idol or do you trust in Christ alone for your redemption? This young man did not fall upon his knees and cry out, Oh God, what have I done? What have I done? You are the great and wondrous God, the beauties of holiness surround your throne and I have substituted for you, oh God. 
the material blessings that are your gifts to me. He didn't do that. And this wealthy young man loved the world more than Christ. Do you love the world more than Christ? Do you love gain more than Christ? Do you love someone or something more than Christ? Is there some idol gripping your heart? What might that absolutely lethal thing be that keeps someone here from Christ this morning? That absolutely lethal idol of the heart that keeps you from embracing Jesus as Lord and as Savior. Well, if this is what the heart is like outside of Christ, it seems helpless and it seems hopeless. And that's right. As far as men are concerned, that's exactly what Jesus wants this young man to see and wants us to see today. Which leads us to the fourth thing we see in this text, what God can do. Now, in verses 23 and following, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Now, we've seen what the law of God can do in the hand of the Holy Spirit. The law of God can show us our guilt. The law of God kills all hope of salvation by self-reformation. The law of God can drive us from our self-confidence. The law of God can show us our need of a Savior, but the law of God cannot save us. Turn to the book of Romans, the third chapter, because what Jesus is doing here is precisely what Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 3. And he tells us what we're like what our human natures are like outside of Christ in Romans 3, beginning at verse 9. And then he tells us what the law has to say about that. In Romans 3, 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under the power of sin. Well, that's everybody. Jew and Gentile, everybody is under the power of sin. As it is written... None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. No more excuses, nothing to offer. Every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the purpose of the law, to bring the knowledge of sin. 
As Jonathan Edwards put it, man must be sensible that he is guilty of death or guilty of damnation before God will reveal him his freedom from his damnation. I was reading with my wife just the other evening, uh, Charles Spurgeon on Psalm 11, and read these few words. Listen, what a tempest will that be which shall overwhelm the despisers of God? Oh, what a shower will that be which shall pour out itself forever upon the defenseless heads of impenitent sinners in hell? Repent, ye rebels, or this fiery deluge shall soon surround you. Hell's horrors shall be your inheritance, your entailed estate, the portion of your cup. The dregs of that cup you shall wring out and drink forever. A drop of hell is terrible, but what must be a full cup of torment? Think of it, a cup of misery, but not a drop of mercy. And I began to think, this is the way the church used to preach and the church used to think about these things. And now everything is different. Sin is no longer biblically defined as the transgression against the law of God. Because of that, we no longer see that we really need an atonement and a substitution so that Christ bears our hell on the cross. And the church needs a clarion call to get back to these things. Because the issue is this. The issue is not simply that men fear hell. I offer no hope to that man who says he's converted just because he fears hell. Yes, we should have that healthy fear of hell. But if a person says he's converted just because he fears hell, that man is not converted. That's not the point. The point is not just the fear of hell. The point is that every man, woman, and child be able to say, I see my hell deservedness. And that's why I need a Redeemer and a Savior. Do you see that? That's the issue here. Am I willing to say, I am undone. I have offended the deity. I have offended God. My mouth is shut. I have no excuses any longer to offer. I can do nothing. And are you willing to be done with your self-security? Now, for this young man, wealth was his security. Wealth can be the greatest snare. It can lead to false security. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I will tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I think this has been softened somewhat by preachers who say, well, what the eye of the needle really was was the opening in the city wall, and there you have a camel, and he has backpacks on his hump, and he's trying to get through. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the needle used for sewing. You see that eye? Now look at that camel. Is it possible for that camel to get through the eye of the needle? No. It is impossible for a wealthy man, that is to say a man whose heart is covetous, a man who has wealth as his his idol, it is impossible for that man to be saved any more than a camel could go through the eye of that little needle. That's what Jesus is saying. I have officiated many a funeral, and I'm here to tell you that The wealth of the dead man or woman has not mattered yet. 
rich or poor. It hasn't given them life. It hasn't brought them out of their coffin. It hasn't kept them from the grave. And it hasn't kept them either from heaven or hell, depending upon their relationship with Christ. Who then can be saved, the disciples ask. This seems an impossible thing. And that's what the whole passage is saying to us. Jesus is shutting them up to all but God and his grace. That's the point of the passage. Who then can be saved? So that we read in verse 26, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And God has done the impossible by sending his own son into this world who died on a cross and shed his blood in order that he might redeem men, women, and children like you and me bound up in our idols, completely tossed about in our sin, controlled in our depravity. He has done the impossible by sending the Holy Spirit to take his law and show us that we are sinners and to drive us out of ourselves and to gently but effectually call us to put faith in Jesus Christ alone for our redemption. What is impossible with men is possible with the sovereign God. Mr. Spurgeon was right when he said, the only reason a man thinks he is righteous is because he does not know the law. God has never lowered his standard. The law is inflexible. And if you are to be saved, that law must be perfectly obeyed and the penalty of a broken law perfectly paid. And so what you need is someone who will obey for you. What you need is someone who is a substitute on the cross who through his shed blood could actually pay the penalty and that someone is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Oh, that God would do for us what he did in those days of Jonathan Edwards' ministry when he preached in Northampton. God the Holy Spirit came down with power upon that congregation. And there was a sense, Jonathan Edwards writes in his narrative of surprising conversion, there was a sense in his congregation that his people could not lie low enough. Looking on him whom they pierced, they mourned, and their self-righteousness was completely broken, and their hearts went out to faith in Christ only. And if you are lost and undone, I do pray that the Holy Spirit will open your heart, that you will see yourself to be a hell-deserving sinner. In the Isle of Lewis, in that great revival I told you about a couple of weeks back, when men fell under deep conviction, like that farmer on his knees, crying out before God, hell is not good enough for me. Do you know what the Presbyterian ministers did when that happened? They left them alone. Let the Holy Spirit do his work and do it deep down. And my prayer is that God the Holy Spirit will rain down upon our nation and bring deep, real conviction of sin under the law of God 
so that they will be shut up to only one hope, and that is the mercy of God in Christ. I hope you'll join me in that prayer. I know I overdo Spurgeon sometimes, and some of my friends that are not here any longer but are in heaven. I was reading him on Galatians. I, that was why the law was sent, to convince us of sin, to make us shake and shiver before God. Oh, you that are self-righteous, let me speak to you this morning with just a word or two of terrible and burning earnestness. Remember, sirs, the day is coming when a crowd more vast than this shall be assembled on the plains of earth. When a great white throne, the Savior, judge of men, shall sit. Now he has come, the book is opened, the glory of heaven is displayed, rich with triumphant love and burning with unquenchable vengeance. Ten thousand angels are on either hand, and you are standing to be tried. Now, self-righteous man, tell me now that you went to church three times a day. Come, man, tell me now that you kept all the commandments. Tell me now that you are not guilty. Come before him with, with a receipt in, of your mint and your anise and your cumin. Come along with you. Where are you? Oh, you are fleeing. You are crying. Rocks hide us. Mountains on us fall. What are you after, man? Why, you were so fair on earth that none dare to speak to you. You were so good and so comely. Why do you now run away? Come, man, pluck up courage. Come before thy maker. Tell him that thou wert honest, sober, excellent, and that thou deservest to be saved. Why dost thou delay to repeat thy boastings? Out with it. Come and say it. No, you will not. I see you still flying with shrieks away from your Maker's presence. There will none be found to stand before Him then in their own righteousness. But look, look, look! I see a man coming forward out of that motley throng. He marches forward with a steady step and with a smiling eye. What is there any man found who dares to approach the dread tribunal of God? What is there one who dares to stand before his maker? Yes, there is one. He comes forward and he cries, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Do you not shudder? Will not the mountains of wrath swallow him? Will not God launch that dreadful thunderbolt against him? No, listen while he confidently proceeds. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that has risen again. And I see the right hand of God outstretched. Come, ye blessed, enter the kingdom prepared for you. Now is fulfilled the verse which you once sweetly sang. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, while through thy blood absolved I am from sin's tremendous curse and shame. And people of God, that's the purpose of this text. That's the point of this text. Don't turn it off. Don't turn a deaf ear to it. Don't walk out and not think about it again. May God not let you. If you are lost and undone, may you have sleepless nights. May the Holy Spirit work until He bring you to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May you see 
that on that great day of judgment, which you know in your heart and conscience is coming, because eternity is written on your heart, you know that on that great day as you stand before the holy God, that you cannot stand dressed in your own righteousness, for you have none. But there is only one righteousness that will do as a garment. God seeing, he will say to you, come, enter into my kingdom. And that is the righteousness, the perfect record of Jesus Christ. Imputed to our accounts and received by faith alone. God's people said... Amen.